to you. Mark chapter 5 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation more or less. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be a little lost tonight without one. Just wave to one of the men that are coming up the aisles right now and they'll get a Bible to you. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. We come to Mark chapter 5, and we've got a cluster of three uh, individuals who come into contact with Jesus in the course of His public ministry, and uh, it is three very, very different circumstances in their lives that bring uh, them uh, to Him. And there's a desperation about all of, all of their lives. You think about how many people uh, come to know the Lord. Many, many do in their childhood. They're raised uh, around the things of the Lord, and it's kind of a smooth uh, move into a lifelong relationship with Him. And then very often uh, for others, especially the older we get, it takes some kind of a crisis that uh, we realize this is beyond our background, this is beyond our resources, and we need God uh, to intervene, or we have no hope in this situation. And there's uh, three such people in Acts chapter 5. This first uh, 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 person that we run into, notice in verse 1, and then they, that is Jesus and the disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, that is the Sea of, the Gal uh, of Galilee, to the country of uh, the Gadarenes. And so they come to a place that's known as Gadara. It is one of the, my favorite places. They're all favorite on a tour of Israel, but I really love uh, visiting Gadara for the lesson that is learned there related to uh, this man's life. Beautiful, uh, a powerful truth associated with it and a very, very uh, comforting truth. You probably have noticed uh, the, the same way that I have in terms of the culture and um, how enamored it is uh, on a, a level that they think they can control, but how enamored it is with evil. Uh, and, uh, and how fascinated it is with the devil. Uh, so you'll maybe watch a sporting event on TV or something that's, you know, comparably innocent, uh, just uh, gigantic human beings running full speed at each other and uh, uh, with the intent of stopping them and maybe hurting them. Uh, good, clean fun. But then you see the commercials, uh, and, uh, and some of the commercials that you see for the miniseries that are on and the things that you can watch and all, and you just realize, wow, if you're going to sit down and really get into that, you are going to expose yourself to really astonishing darkness and, and astonishing uh, evil. I think about the fascination with the devil within our culture, and uh, probably because we come from uh, a, a Christian background as a nation, we feel that there's some kind of a safe distance that we can play around with these areas in life and that they won't uh, come close. Uh, you wouldn't be as successful in parts of Africa or in India or other parts of the world, but here sometimes we think we have uh, those margins. But in terms of the fascination with the devil and with evil, I, I, I sometimes wonder if it isn't kind of a, a, a tacit uh, a recognition of his uh, existence, even by those who won't believe in God. Somehow they sense that. 
you know, if you sit down and you watch a movie and it's a science fiction movie and it's like 3,000 years in the future or something like that and you see whatever's going on and you watch it for the special effects and whatever storyline and you look at it, but you're not on the edge of your seat. You say, okay, I wonder how this is going to work out and everything. You're not on the edge of the seat because it's, it's such fantasy. It's so far out there that, that there's, there's no way you build a bridge to it and say, you know, that's something I need to be concerned about in my own life. But then the movies that have to do with the devil and they have to do with evil and, uh, and stirring these kind of things up. People are on the edge of their seat and uh, they are afraid of it. You watch a drama where, you know, somebody's breaking into a house and, you know, uh, busting the whole place up or whatever. I mean, here, the, whoever's making the movie's got us on the edge of the seat. Why? Because we know that has a basis in reality. That could happen to any of us. I mean, our emotional engagement is, is directly proportional in that way. And so when these movies come on, people are fascinated by it. They go to see these things in droves. Uh, there is this sense that this isn't something distant. This is something uh, that's near. This is something that's a possibility. And uh, funny how we, we live in a culture that increasingly doesn't accept the existence of God, but is more and more fascinated with the devil. But what do you do when the devil jumps uh, off of the TV screen? And uh, now he's no longer just a means of, of uh, you know, curiosity. He's no longer a means of uh, kept at some kind of a safe distance, but he, he actually comes in uh, to, to a life, becomes to oppress or to possess or uh, yourself or some, not as a Christian, but someone that's watching this or, or a family member. And then who do you turn to? And it's not a, a game at all. I certainly believe in the devil. I believe in God. I certainly believe in the devil. It reminds me of the story that I tell every once in a while about the young, uh, zealous preacher and the uh, old uh, liberal preacher. And they're having a conversation. The old liberal preacher said to the young preacher, he said, you know, you talk about the devil this and the devil that, you know, in 40 years of ministry, I've never run into him. And the young preacher said, has it ever occurred to you that you're both going in the same direction? Uh, if you want to go in the opposite direction, you'll run into him a lot. I happen to run into the devil a lot, not in terms of possession, but in terms of, of warfare and oppression and this kind of thing, and I'm sure that's your portion uh, as well. And so uh, the story of Jesus' power, this power encounter that, that occurs in this passage, it's always been uh, a comfort uh, to me. And I, I've mentioned it before, and, um, but I've mentioned everything before. Uh, but early in my life, uh, an exposure to this side of things in a way that I won't get into, uh, but it makes me uh, very, very comforted by the fact that the one greater is he who uh, dwells in me than he that is in the world. So they come, and they're at the, sea, uh, the side of the, uh, of the sea, uh, on the eastern side of, of the Sea of Galilee, and, the, and they, they come up on the land. And, uh, and this land is, it is uh, there's all kinds of caves. I mean, the, the land just comes right up out of the sea, and there's all kinds of caves in this area. That's why when we talk, read about tombs here in a minute, uh, people buried their, uh, their dead in caves. They didn't, uh, you know, have plots the way that we do, and, and so it was a perfect place for, for all of this. And so he comes in there, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, and this was, again, it was a burial ground, and a man with an unclean spirit. You notice that this demonic spirit that fills him, he's demon-possessed. 
And it's called, uh, the devil is called, and, and, and demons are called an unclean spirit as opposed to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, uh, and what uh, an unclean spirit of the devil will produce in a, in a human life is the polar opposite of what the Holy Spirit intends. I like that uh, two words in verse 2 where it declares, there met him out of the tombs, and here it is, a man, a man with an unclean spirit. And here as Jesus comes on this scene, uh, as we'll read about uh, what a, a, a walking, talking, demonic stronghold that he is, uh, Jesus, when he comes into contact uh, with him, for all that is going on in him, however many hundreds or thousands of demons might have uh, been in him, Jesus sees a man. And I think it's an important uh, lesson for us. You know, so often we look at people in life, and uh, we can look at the homeless, or we can look at a drug addict, or we can look at uh, all kinds of people uh, that are diagnosed with different diseases, and all we see is what they are in terms of their outward appearance to us, what it is that can only be seen with the naked eye. But when God looks at every human being in this world, He sees all the way down through all of that clutter, all those decisions, all those mistakes, and He sees us a human being at the core of all of that. And it's important for us in terms of uh, of establishing and maintaining compassion uh, in a world that uh, is fast approaching the world that, that was uh, the world of this man. And so he's, uh, here is this demon-possessed man, and, and the, the, there is the description now of his condition. This is one of the things I like about the Bible. I like everything about the Bible, but I like about the Bible is that uh, it always tells you the truth about things. And uh, what it tells you about is in this passage is where the Bible will take any individual if he's given a chance to do that. So often, again, with the TV shows or the, uh, the literature, the books that are being written and all, that is a, a carefully crafted picture uh, of him and uh, an appealing one. But here we see what he will do in any life he's given an opportunity to do so. And here you've got this man, he had his dwelling among the tombs. So he's no longer a part of his family. He's no longer a part of his home. Uh, nobody can withstand him there. He's living uh, among the dead. He's, he's dead while he's alive, essentially, and, and dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even uh, with chains. And, and uh, the, the attempts to incarcerate him, the attempts to bind him, but as is so often the case with demonic uh, possession, uh, supernatural strength in, in the individual. He couldn't be uh, held by the chains because he had been uh, often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been uh, pulled apart by him. Uh, that's, if I saw this guy coming up to me right after we hit the dock, Ah, nice seeing you. Let's go to another part of the Sea of Galilee. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't run? I don't know that the, you know, the disciples didn't form a line immediately behind him, you know, in, in all of this. Jesus isn't terrified by any of it. I mean, just the strength of the man. And he, he would pull them apart, break, the, not only release the shackles from him, but then he'd break them in pieces after he, he did release him. 
and neither could anyone uh, tame him. So he's just com- a completely out of control human being. There's nothing in terms of mankind. There's nothing that his family can do. There's nothing that government can do. Uh, there's nothing that a group of people can do. Uh, he has no hope in the human realm uh, in, in his condition. And then uh, verse 5 goes on to talk about uh, the torment of his life. And always, night and day, I mean, always is a strong term, night and, a day, night and day, a strong. He didn't sleep at, at, during the day and step at night. He didn't sleep at night and get up in the day. The constant portion of his life was uh, that he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, this crying out, this torment of this man uh, is it's uh, detailed for us. It, it, the crying out is probably not the demons that are crying out in him. It could be that. I wouldn't be dogmatic on it. Uh, but you have a, a man, you have a human being who is lost way down into a, a multiplied demon possession, uh, uh, possessed situation. And imagine what it must be like. And, and as a Christian, all we could do is imagine, and don't waste your time on it for any length of time, but it'll be not, it's all we can do is imagine. It will be nothing that we can ever experience. But imagine being, I mean, life is hard enough, right? We talked about it this morning. But then on top of it, to be demon-possessed. And here you have this man, day and night, uh, crying out, uh, and everybody can hear him, crying out in the day and in the night over uh, the, the, the horror of his condition, and then he's cutting himself with stones. I don't know how desperate you get before you cut yourself with stones. I didn't find a surgical instrument. He's taking any kind of rock, and he's gouging himself. The word cutting there in the Greek, it's not talking about a small slice or something like this. It is, it is literally gouging out pieces of his flesh that are being decided. He's absolutely self-destructive under the influence uh, of, of the devil here. And then when he saw Jesus from afar, uh, he ran and he worshipped, uh, he worshipped him. And, uh, and he cried out with a loud voice. And he said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most uh, high uh, God? And, and so he uh, comes to him, and what is fascinating here in, in verses 6 and 7 is to see uh, what demons know about Jesus. Uh, these demons that are inside of this man, they are more theologically sound uh, than most liberal denominations in the United States of America. And which is horrifying, really, uh, to think about, as they would, you know, deny the deity of Christ and, and this kind of thing. And, uh, but you notice he knew who Jesus was before ever Jesus identifies himself. I mean, the, the demonic realm understands Jesus from uh, way, way back, even before uh, the fall of Adam and Eve in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden. And you notice the demons, they uh, called him Jesus. Jesus, is, Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. They recognize him as the Messiah. They recognize him as the Son of the Most High God. That is, they recognize uh, his uh, deity. And, uh, and so the, the theological uh, uh, orthodoxy of the demon 
Uh, James, of course, uh, writes that you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. And here we see an example of it. There are no uh, atheistic uh, demons. There are no agnostic demons. Nobody, uh, no, no one in the demonic realm is wondering about the existence of God. They are completely uh, aware uh, of the existence of God and, and the existence of the Son of God. And so he then declares, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And here you have the recognition of the, uh, the, the, the lesser imploring the greater. Uh, these demons know that they're completely at the mercy of Jesus and His power and His authority, and, uh, and they feared His power, uh, and they implored Him that, that, that Jesus would not uh, torment them. And for Jesus had said, uh, said to them, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked the demon, what is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion in those days, and remember this is written in the context of the Roman Empire, a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. And, and so you notice when he says here, My name is Legion, for we are many. He says, we are, It doesn't say we are a couple or we are a few, we are a many. Uh, was he demon possessed by a full 6,000? I don't know. I don't know that the devil would allocate uh, 6,000 demons in his, uh, in his great uh, effort to destroy uh, uh, to one person, but, but maybe he did. I don't think uh, it, it may very well be that there were 2,000 in him because we're going to see that the demons go into 2,000 pigs and, and end up uh, casting themselves and drowning in, in the Sea of Galilee. But this guy is a walking, talking, demonic stronghold. Nobody, not, uh, not no one but God. He didn't have a, a hope anywhere but in God and in, in the power that is found in Jesus. Isn't it interesting? I'm fairly alert uh, in life and fairly connected uh, with the world, not on a worldly level, but uh, just keeping up with things. And I don't see anything that ever comes uh, on the scene in terms of some uh, new person that people turn to, or some new religion, or some new guru, or some new religious leader that uh, the world turns to in order to uh, come against demon possession. It's always Jesus. They're always calling for someone who is connected to Jesus because there's the recognition that he alone has the authority and has the power to release a person from this kind of condition. And so he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And also he begged Jesus, again, the recognition of the gap in terms of authority. The devil knows he's no match for the devil. You beg the greater. You don't dem if you're the greater, you demand. When you're the lesser, uh, you beg. Again, greater is he that is in us, that is the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. They're, they've grown very, very comfortable, apparently, in the, in the area of the Gadarenes. And now there was a large uh, herd of swine, pigs, feeding uh, there near the mountains. And so uh, all the demons, they all begin to cry out of him. What an awful scene it must have been. I, do, I would love a picture of the disciples I mean, watching this. Wow, what is, what is happening here? And they begged him, again, recognizing Jesus' authority, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. So it is interesting uh, to notice apparently about the demonic realm 
that they don't like to be disembodied spirits. They don't like to be uh, without some kind of a physical body through which to manifest themselves. Uh, And here, if they're going to be cast out of a human being, probably uh, the highest vehicle for manifesting uh, oneself for a demon, uh, then if they can't have that, then they will uh, settle for uh, a pig. And, uh, and so they uh, request that they would be cast out in, in, into uh, the swine. I, 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 would, I, I would like to say in this context that um, I do not believe that just any old person uh, in the world is, uh, is going to be demon-possessed. I think that only having the Holy Spirit in us gives us an absolute protection from it. But the fact that every world leader, the fact that every single person in our family that isn't a Christian, every single person in the world that isn't a Christian, there's a lot of demons, uh, innumerable as they're described in in the book of uh, Revelation. But the fact that everyone isn't demon-possessed who is not a Christian, uh, it, it speaks to me, and I do believe it, you don't have to believe it at all that it, it, it somehow we, somebody has to give the demonic realm an opening uh, to play a little bit in this or to be raised in a household where this kind of stuff is going on, even in the name of religion, but it's essentially the worship uh, of demons. And, and, uh, and so, uh, but here they, if they can't have a human body, then they will settle for an, an animal body. And at once Jesus gave them permission And then the unclean spirits went out, and they entered the swine, and there were about 2,000 of the pigs, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea, and they uh, drowned uh, in in the sea. And so here you have uh, uh, the first mention of devil's ham in uh, ancient literature. I know, it's awful. It's just terrible. I told myself all afternoon, you're not going to say that, are you? You're not going to do it. Tom, I tried not to. It's just terrible. The coinier something is, uh, the, more, uh, the more I like it. And, uh, but uh, the destruction then uh, of the animals. And so those who uh, fed the swine, these are the kind of shepherds of the swine. Uh, they're not the owners of it. They then fled back into the city and, and, uh, and the country, and they told the people who did own uh, the herds. And so they, uh, that is the shepherds and uh, those who were tending, and then the owners, they then came to see uh, what it, it was that had happened. And I imagine the whole city just about came out. Here come these, uh, uh, these tending the herd, and they come in, they begin to tell this wild story, and everybody goes, remember, they didn't have television back in those days. This was exciting stuff. It didn't happen every day. And so the great crowd goes out now to see what in the world has happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion. And I I love this description. I love this passage. And they saw him, and and only God knows. And and they knew uh, how long it had been since he'd been in this condition. We've read about what he was, and then now look at how he's described. He is sitting completely at peace. He is clothed. He's civilized. He can interact with mankind again, and in his right uh, mind. And so his mind has been restored. 
And what a picture that is. I don't know. I, I didn't come to the Lord in this exact same way. I, 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 I certainly didn't. And I, I came to the, the Lord before I ever got to the, 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 my straits being as dire as this. But I'm convinced that if I had not come to know the Lord earlier in my life, that today I would have made just about as big a mess uh, of my life as this man ever made of his life. And, uh, and, I, and I never lose sight of the blessing that is mine for my background and who I am and all that goes into all of that, uh, the blessing of knowing Christ. And here, your blessing too, to be sitting here tonight at peace, clothed, and in our right minds. And some of us know that only God is to explain for that. And their reaction, you would have thought, would have been, wow. You're the one that can do this. Tell us more. Teach us. What it is that do you want to say with us? Stay forever with us. Never leave to another city on the Sea of Galilee. But that's not their reaction. That would have been the normal reaction. But the reaction was that they were afraid of that power. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, and then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. I mean, that's just a stunner. That's just a stunner. I mean, how valuable are pigs? And how valuable is a human being in a culture? I mean, we're, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. And I mean, you talk about having priorities upside down in terms of how God sees things and how valuable things are. And here they're all upset with this, and the one thing that they have to say to Jesus is they begin to plead. That's a strong word. They begin to beg with him, him to depart from their region. The only thing I can think of, and, uh, and it may not be right, uh, but I think most people uh, are uh, in this understanding of the passage, the only reason that they would plead with him to leave in this way is that uh, somehow uh, they looked at this and Jesus hanging around was bad for business. So they own these pigs, these pigs ends up, end up destroyed, and uh, they, they look at it and, and they're in the pig business. I'd, I personally don't doubt the fact that it's highly likely that these were not Gentiles, but they were Jews raising pigs, uh, contrary to the law of Moses. And so Jesus kind of kills two birds with one stone here to try and get their attention as Jews to him as, as the Messiah. This is a tremendous power encounter that's happened right uh, before them, and then to deliver uh, this man. But they ask him, they plead with him to depart. Uh, again, picture it in your mind like a movie or, or some kind of video or what. I mean, how do you plead? I mean, what words do you use to plead with the Son of God to leave your area? I mean, what, I mean, how do you put that into words? How do you even get the words out of your mouth? And yet they do it. And if you think that's the most shocking part of the passage, it isn't. Verse 18, he leaves. That's the shocking part of the passage, is that Jesus won't force himself on anyone in any situation. 
It is an honor to know him. It is an honor to have him engaged in our world and in our lives. And the thing of it is, is they plead with him to leave, and then the horror of the situation is that he leaves. He honors the request that they make of him in the situation. And the only thing that could be more horrible than all of this is, is what will happen one day in any individual's who, human life who has rejected Jesus, asked him to have nothing to do with the depart from my life and away from me, and then to see, to realize that Jesus will depart, and then to see the great horror that follows in all of that. Now, this is, this is astonishing. And so, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, he begged. They begged him to leave. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. Now, that's somebody that's been thoroughly saved. And they recognize that what's most valuable to him now is not the fact that he's been delivered of his demon. What's valuable to him now is the relationship with Jesus that's come out of it. He wants to hang around with Jesus. He wants to travel with Jesus. He wants to follow him, and he wants to follow him close. I mean, he's got an appreciation for Christianity and holiness and these things that many people don't have, and he begged him. I'd love to see that myself as well. He begged Jesus that he might be with him. Let me go with you. Let me leave this horrible place where I have this horrible history, and let me be close to you. And Jesus, however, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. It's wonderful how the Lord places us in our own sphere of influence for the kingdom of God. And uh, so often he sends us right back into the old neighborhoods or back into the old situations, our life changed, and then to give people the explanation for the change in our life. And it wasn't that some psychosomatic thing or we read some book on self-helps or positive confession or anything like this. This is what I once was. And this is how I came into contact with Jesus. And this is the life that I live now. And Jesus tells him, go and, at home uh, to your friends and, and tell them that. I, I do think that one of the things that the passage teaches us in this regard, and I don't say it as a guilt got you at all. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't, uh, you know, look for opportunities to, to put guilt or to, you know, put people under the thumb and, and, uh, and crush them under it. But none of us as Christians should have any close family members and close friends who do not know our testimony, who do not know our story for what makes us tick, why we are the way that we are, what we once were, and what God has made us into. It only takes 90 seconds to say it. I don't say that that should be the case with every acquaintance that we have in our life or every coworker maybe in our life or these distant relationships. But everyone within our families that we're in contact with and our friends should know that the miracle of the life that they see before them 
is because of Jesus. And if it only means that we are living a relatively normal life like everyone else, a holy life, but a normal life like everyone else, and it doesn't look like a miracle has occurred in our lives, all we need to tell them is what we once were or what we once knew we were capable of and that God has taken us off of that road. And so he said, you go home to your friends. I do think that if, 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 if let me just think out loud with you on this, in terms of evangelism, and we want to, we want to engage in every bit of a form of evangelism that we can, strangers, unknown people, all of that, that's great and, it's, and, it, and rewarding and fruitful in its own way. But I think about if, if every Christian in the world uh, shared the gospel by way of their testimony with every family member and every significant friend within their life if much of the world wouldn't be uh, evangelized as a result of it. A beautiful thing that he calls this, this man to do. And as he goes back home, I mean, he's going to live a life and everybody's going to talk for the rest of their life. This is what he was. But then I got the broken shackles right here in the other room. I keep them in a box. This is what you can't believe what this guy was. And you look at him now. Now he's your favorite uncle or your favorite granddad or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so he departed and he began to proclaim in Decapolis, that entire region, that Je- what Jesus had done for him. And everyone uh, marveled at the report. And then we come now into uh, this beautiful uh, further demonstration of God's power, these two miracles of healings that are, are listed here that overlap. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat, he crosses another section of the Sea of Galilee to another side, and a great multitude gathered to him. And this is uh, the, his portion at this time, tremendous popularity. And he's standing by the sea, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may uh, be healed, and she will live. Now, one of the things that makes this astonishing is that Jairus, as he's described here, is that he is uh, one of the rulers of the synagogue in the city that Jesus is in. And it was a very prestigious position, Jewish position, in in the local synagogue. And uh, and it would be uh, something kind of like uh, uh, somewhere a combination of an elder and a deacon. He would have responsibility for making sure that everything was right in, in the synagogue, that everything was in place for the worship services, and, and, uh, and have a very strong uh, hand in that. And he would have been known in the community and respected for it. But when this happens in his life, remember as we've talking about, spoken about in recent weeks, that Jesus is in the final year of his public ministry, the year of opposition where the Jewish religious leaders as a whole are looking for any means that they might be able to devise in order to uh, kill Jesus. And so this man, when he comes uh, to Jesus he, and, and does so publicly within the city, I mean, he is thro- he's throwing job security away. He's throwing everything away. But he's throwing it away under the desperation that any parent would understand, and that is that his 12-year-old daughter is near death. You forget decorum. 
in, in that particular situation. And so he comes, and here is this ruler of, of the Jewish synagogue. He, he kneels down, throws himself down before Jesus, and begins to plead with him and, and beg him uh, to come. And, uh, and despite all of the opposition within his circles to Jesus, one of the things that has to be happening within his life is that he has heard. I mean, he's got all of the, the, the uh, you know, uh, powerful people in the Jewish religious establishment plotting Jesus' death. They know he's on the most wanted list uh, for them and all. And, uh, and here he is. He's a part of this whole thing. But he also hears what everybody else is hearing, that this guy is healing people in every city that he goes into. This guy is delivering people of demons in every city that he goes into. He even raises people up from the dead. And when he hears that, he says, forget about religion, religion, or whatever that might be. And he, and he throws all of it off, and he realizes he's finally hit a situation in his life. He's got the comfort, the security of, uh, of a religious uh, history, of, of a religious institution, and he realizes this people can no more heal my daughter than the man in the moon, but the man who can heal him has just come into my city. And he throws all of it off, and he comes, comes to Jesus in that. I remember many years ago, I have to find it uh, online again, but I listened to, I was a young Christian at the time, and I listened to a, 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 an audio tape by Arthur Blessed. He's the guy that used to carry the cross all around the world and preach the gospel. And Arthur Blessed was teaching, I think it was in Houston, and there must have been 35, 40,000 people in whatever stadium or arena he was in, and he was preaching uh, to them, pastors. And, uh, and it's one of those things where uh, sometimes there can be an anointing and a dynamic that is in the room, but it doesn't really get caught on the tape. You had to be there to experience what the Spirit was doing. And then other times it just transcends. The truth of what is being said, you just realize this guy is up there and he is speaking and he is purely a mouthpiece for God at this particular point in time. Tremendous exhortation uh, to pastors. But he, he's talked about, as an illustration in that sermon, he talked about one time going to a city and uh, speaking at a particular church, and it was a Pentecostal church. And as he was speaking at the Pentecostal church that night at the end of the service, as was the custom apparently in this Pentecostal church, you haven't had church until you get everybody up in front. And so the pastor then got up and called everybody up in front if they had this or they had that, and, and certainly if they had any sickness or any disease or anything like that. And so everybody that was sick, everybody that needed healing came forward, and he pronounced healing upon them and, and anointed them and all. And so the night was over, and he's driving Arthur Blessed uh, off to the airport that evening to depart to another place. And Arthur says to the pastor, he said to the pastor, he said, uh, I didn't get the chance to meet your wife. Uh, was she there tonight? I would have loved to have met her. And the pastor who's driving, his, he, he gives this heavy sigh, and, and he declared, she wasn't there tonight. She was sick at home. And he realizes he has played the hypocrite. He has just acted uh, in one environment when he couldn't touch what needed to be touched within his own home. And Arthur Blessed 
looked over at him and he said, he said, don't worry about it. He said, when your theology fails, Jesus never fails. When your theology fails, Jesus never fails. When your church fails, Jesus never fails. When your denomination fails, Jesus never fails. When all of the spiritual securities that we think are around us, when those fail and that are tied to man, Jesus never fails. And here is a man who realizes now that I'm in the middle of something that only God and the way that he's manifesting himself through Jesus can help me in this situation. And so he begs him earnestly again in verse 23, my little daughter lies at the point of death. She's just about to die. Come. And I mean, look at the faith that he has here. Come and despite the indoctrination of his religious system against Jesus. And sometimes you've got to come out of a religious system. You've got to come out of a religious indoctrination in order to come to know Jesus as he, as he fully is and the power of his life. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. What a tremendous expression of faith on the part of this man. And so Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him, uh, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. And so you put yourself in the shoes of this man and uh, and imagine what he is uh, feeling like in, in, uh, in this situation. Jesus is now going with me. He's going to my home. Everything's going to be okay. My daughter is going to be healed. My daughter is going to be safe. And this is the emotion that he must be feeling now as Jesus takes and makes him and his daughter a priority, and they begin to head uh, toward the house. And the crowd throngs. I mean, they want to see what it is that Jesus is going to do and, 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 and what's, uh, what's going to happen in all of this. And then a subplot comes up in it, and there was a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. She's a part of the crowd now thronging. And she has this flow of blood for 12 years, and it's probably a menstrual flow. And imagine having for 12 years being like on your period every day, every week. I mean, you're talking about today. I don't know how, what a person would do in that condition in those days without the diet that we have potential for, or iron pills, or these kind of things. What this must have, have left her, the, the condition that she was in, this flow of blood, and then notice for how long she's got this particular ailment that she has for 12 years. It takes you a little while to count to 12. And then you make each one a year. That's a long time to be in a chronic uh, illness kind of situation. So she's in a tough place. And she had, and, and with the flow of blood, by the way, one of the things that happened with a woman, as a Jewish woman within that culture, is you couldn't attend synagogue. You couldn't attend temple. Uh, anyone that you would touch, you would render unclean. Uh, nobody's touched her without being rendered ceremonial unclean for 12 years. Talk about not just the physical thing that she's going through, but the social, the emotional, the mental isolation that's a part of her life as well. And then we're told in verse 26, as if it couldn't get worse, that she had suffered many things from many physicians. And I'm thankful for how far medicine has come in our day and how at this point in time in human history, people uh, suffer less under the weight of medicine than ever before in human history. But there's still a lot of suffering that can be associated with it. 
And she's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor, and not only… And you think about the desperation of it, where you go from one physician, and any of you that have had a disease that took some time for it to be diagnosed or to be dealt with or whatever it might be, or to be incurable. And, and you, you know the whole emotional up and down of it. You, you go to see this guy. Somebody told you that this is the person. They helped them, and you go see this person. And then it doesn't work for you, but then somebody says this person, and you go there, and then somebody says they took a concoction of this, and then you do this, and all, all of the hopes rising and, then, and being dashed over and over and over again, and that's her portion for 12 years. And then… Uh, and, and as she goes to these physicians, one after another, ultimately she spent all that she had. Uh, we, sometimes we think today that health care is just expensive in the modern age. It's always been expensive. Medical care has always been expensive in human history. And she spends everything that she has, and she is no better. In fact, she is even worse. So it's one thing to be sick and have a little bit of money in the bank. It's another thing to be sick and now completely broken, hopeless. And when she heard about Jesus, probably hearing about the miracles that he had been doing all throughout the land, but then that he was in the city that she was in at that moment, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. And we're told in another gospel that she grabbed discreetly, she grabbed the hem uh, of his garment for she said, and this was, the, this was the faith behind the clutch, she said, if only I may touch his clothes, and the idea is even just his clothes, I shall be made well. And that's the faith that she came to Jesus with. And immediately upon doing it, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. I mean, if sometimes you just wish there was like a Bible that you could put your fingerprints on and just feel the emotion in the individual that's experiencing that. I guess the Holy Spirit is intended to do that in our lives. But imagine in that instant in time, again, 12 years, broke. You've been to everyone you know that can possibly help, and your, and your blood, uh, your life is still flowing out of you. And she touches just the hem of this guy's garment, and she feels it in her body instantly. That, that she has been, been, been healed uh, of the affliction. There's something about being in a chronic uh, uh, pain situation or in a chronic disease. One of the things that happens in your life is that you forget what you used to feel like. You forget what normal is. I remember when I was first diagnosed with, uh, with a leukemia, that the numbers kept going up, the white blood cell count up, 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 up every three months that I'd go and visit them at Stanford until finally they were uh, delaying a little bit to try and get me in a clinical trial if it could possibly happen and until my, my white blood cell went up to 410,000. And normal is between 6,000 and 10,000. So I'm just choked with these white blood cells and I'm skin and bones and all, and then immediately upon beginning the treatment, I began to feel what I had even lost consciousness of. I couldn't even remember what it felt to feel good any longer. And to just feel that again, I mean, this must have just been something inside of her body. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power, dunamis, had gone out of him. He didn't see it, but he knew that someone had tapped 
by faith had touched into uh, the power that, that comes from his life, and he then turned around in the crowd, and then he announces, he speaks out, and he says, who touched my clothes? And, and, and he declares it. And the disciples, they're a little bit concerned for him. The disciples said to him, uh, Lord, you see the multitude that's thronging you. You've got hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are crowded around you. They are pushing you, and they're shoving you, and you say, who touched me? Listen, can we get you a drink of water? Maybe you need to sit down here for a moment uh, and uh, regather yourself. But Jesus knew something, and I think it's an important lesson in the passage. There's a difference to Jesus between being thronged by people and being touched by faith. And he knew that the crowd was thronging him and coming along for a lot of other different motivations to see a dog and pony show, to see what he would do. Here's some excitement in our town that we haven't seen before. And he realized that somebody in this vast crowd touched me in a way that nobody in this crowd has touched me. I've been touched by faith. One of the things that it speaks to me about, and uh, I'm a Christian, you'll be, you're, you'll be happy to hear that, but, but as a Christian, I attend church just like everyone else. I happen to attend this church, and I'm the pastor of this church, but I attend this church. I come to church all, all the time just in the same way that you do. And one of the things that it teaches me, especially the longer I've walked with the Lord and and the more experience that I have with Him. I always want to be careful and, and aware of how easy it is, even on a Sunday morning or any service, but on a Sunday morning in a church, for the church to just simply be a religious thr a throng rather than to be uh, something that I go to with the expectation that I am going to touch God with my faith, and I wonder what He's going to do in my life today. And how many, perhaps, and I exert my own heart uh, above anyone else's, but how after the long haul of things in terms of being a Christian, uh, there is to going to church out of some kind of a habit or ritual or even a dis discipline, and that's commendable, or out of the idea, let's go there and see what happens today. And it's just a throng. And I cease to come in e even before the service begins, and we begin to worship Him in song and then continue to worship Him in the study of His Word and to cease to come in with an expectation that I'm going to reach out to Him with my faith, and God is going to do something in my life uh, today. And that's an entirely different dynamic. And the one group comes into contact with the power and the fullness of Christ, and the other group uh, misses it, and it's important to take note of it. And so he looked around in verse 32 and to see her who had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling, uh, knowing, I mean, she thought this was a secret. Jesus is now calling her out uh, publicly on this, knowing what had happened to her. She's been healed, and she knows that uh, dynamic from Christ, virtue from Christ has accomplished it in her life. And she came and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And she doesn't know what his reaction is going to be at this point. And then he said to her, daughter, what a wonderful word. 
Again, it's so easy for the world to just look at people with a disease and all they see is the disease. They don't see there's a human being behind that issue of blood. There's a real-life human being all the way down on the inside that is there that needs to be spoken to and ministered to and acknowledged as is existing there. And so he does that with this gentle term, daughter. I also think when he uses the word daughter that he is communicating that something far more than a physical healing has occurred within her life, but that she has come to him with a faith, and then this response to faith that has occurred here, that she has now become a part of the family of God, and, and that a spiritual healing and dynamic has her, occurred in her life, even beyond the physical. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. It wasn't the, the hem of my garment that made you well. It is your faith that made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. In other words, what happened to you here is not a five-minute thing. It's not a one-hour thing. You are healed. Go in peace. Wow. And while he was still speaking to the woman, some then came. I mean, you, you feel the energy, the dynamic of the whole everything that's going on, the crowd that is happening. And now uh, this new group of people kind of pushed to the front to where Jesus is, and he's still speaking with the, women, uh, the woman. And then some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house uh, who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, you want to talk about going from a high to a low in an instant? He has so much trust. My daughter is going to be saved. My daughter is going to be healed. Jesus is coming. It's going to be okay. And then they come and they tell him, don't bother him any, any longer. She's moved past where, uh, where even he can't uh, enter in and impact it. She's dead. Don't bother him to come to your house any further. And Jesus, wonderfully, he doesn't wait for uh, the, the, uh, Jairus to step in or Jairus to try and process this thing in a spiritual way or something. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, speaks to Jairus directly, and he said, do not be afraid, only believe. I like it in the New King, in the Living Translation, it is, don't be afraid, just trust in me. And here you have one of these situations in life, and they come to all of our lives sooner or later. Here is Jairus. He wakes up one day, and whatever it is that his daughter is dealing with, uh, she's sick, and she's going to die. I mean, that's bad news. That's hard news. And then in the course of the day, bad news is going to become even worse news. And the worst news is that she's already dead. And Jesus comes up against that in the situation and declares to him, do not be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid, just trust in me. And that's his, his answer to us today in those kind of situations. And I've been in situations where you just think it can't get worse than it is right now. It cannot get worse than it is right now. And then suddenly it does. And this is the word for that kind of situation. Don't be afraid, only believe. If I spoke to that to you, it'd be meaningless. Or if anyone else in this room spoke it to you, it'd be meaningless. But when Jesus speaks it, it's meaningful. Because there is nothing about the first report that he received from Jairus that is greater than his power. 
And there was nothing even about this second report concerning her death that was greater than his power. And he knew that. But Jairus is, is dealing with it at the moment. And he permitted no one as they came to Jairus' house to follow him into the house except Peter, James, uh, and John, the brothers, uh, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and they saw the tumult and those who wept and wailed uh, loudly, when he came in, he said to them, Why do you make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, uh, but sleeping. It is interesting that in, in that ancient culture uh, for the Jews that the, uh, no matter how rich or poor you were, when, when somebody significant died within your family, you would always hire mourners. Even if you were the, the most uh, poverty-stricken man in that culture, and if your wife died, it was in, uh, an expectation that you would hire at least two flute players and, and one professional mourner. And maybe you've uh, watched Lawrence of Arabia or, or even watched like protests in the Middle East or celebrations of some devastation in Israel or something. And the, and the kind of uh, mourning and howling and the noise that gets made. And that's what they would come and do. And what, was, what they were hired to do was, while the family was dealing with its grief, they were hired then to express the depth of the family's grief to everyone else in the city and everyone else in the family. And so this is what they had been hired to do. And these people knew death. They knew when someone was dead and when they weren't dead. They were professionals in this regard. And so when Jesus comes into the scene and he rebukes them, it's, it's very cute to me. I don't know if you can say cute uh, about anything that Jesus does, but, uh, but he says, why make this commotion and weep? Uh, what's going on here? The child is not dead but sleeping. And when they heard this, I mean, they know a dead body, they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, uh, uh, Talitha Kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, uh, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years uh, of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. I mean, you could just see Jairus collapsing to his knees uh, once again. And he commanded them strictly uh, that no one should know it and, that she, uh, and said that uh, something should be given her to eat. She was probably sick for some period of time before she died and uh, in need of nourishment, certainly telling uh, the parents now feed her something that would have encouraged them in the fact that her healing is complete. She is back to normal, ready to process whatever food you want to put uh, in front of her. And then he gave the instruction uh, uh, strictly that uh, no one should know anything about it. Now, ultimately, you can't keep a resurrection secret in a small town. And as soon as she came out of the house and out into public, everyone would know. But Jesus was just asking for it in the, in the immediacy of, of the, that, that resurrection so that the city would not come to know it uh, before he had the ability to discreetly leave the house. 
and then proceed to where he wanted to go to uh, next. And so this beautiful, beautiful healing in, in the, the life uh, of, of this daughter. I think that when you read about these kind of uh, healings and, the, and hear actually a resurrection from uh, the dead, I think a person can ask with all sincerity about the situations where we come to Jesus with faith concerning a loved one and He doesn't uh, heal them, or a loved one and He doesn't raise them uh, from the dead. As much faith as we might have, as much as we might want Him uh, to do that, and it's important to realize that this passage and no passage in the Bible is, 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 it, 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 it teaches that Jesus will always do in every situation what uh, He's done here, but it reveals to us what He can do in these, these situations, what He is capable of doing, so that in our own death, if it should come before the rapture of the church, or in the death of a loved one, and we plead with God, and we beg God to heal our loved one, and then He doesn't heal, but He takes our loved one home to heaven, we have the recognition that in the fact that she or he was not healed was not because Jesus lacked the power to heal them or to resurrect them, but because in His plan and in His perfect plan for our life and for their life, uh, it is time to head to heaven and the, the pilgrimage and, and the race is finished uh, for them, that somehow to raise them from the dead and bring them back or even to heal them from uh, the deathbed would be a violation of His wisdom or His power and His love, and no one wants to violate His power, His wisdom, and His love, no matter how great the, uh, the thing that we want in life because it is to violate what should never, ever be violated. There's nothing better than God, God's power, wisdom, and love, however He chooses to demonstrate it in a given situation. So a beautiful chapter, uh, Mark chapter 5, and record of three great miracles, very, very diverse miracles, and I think united by a single uh, common denominator that we see uh, tonight. And how often it is that a person will come to know the Lord uh, so often only when they finally hit a situation in life that is beyond their own resources. Uh, monetary resources, their emotional resources, their mental resources, their physical resources, whatever, whatever it might be. And to realize what has to happen here can only happen. Uh, only God can do it. And then they turn to God, and God is so faithful to, to meet us in, in that place. And whether it's a demonic oppression or possession or incurable disease or the, the illness and, in, uh, or the death of, of a loved one. And one of the great things, I think, in this situation as we read about it here in, in Mark chapter uh, 5, is that when all three of these people in their own way come to Jesus and experience uh, His power, I mean, they finally come to Him. The demoniac comes to Him after who knows what kind of a life. Uh, the, uh, Jairus comes to him only uh, when desperation drives him to it in, in terms of his religious background. And here, uh, this woman, she's gone to every physician that she had the money for for 12 years. He's a last resort in all of their lives. He's a last resort. And the wonderful thing about Jesus in, in the chapter is when each one of them comes to Him, He never says, ah, you made me your last resort, huh? 
You didn't come to me first. You had to try everything else before you came to me. Well, I don't have anything for you if you're going to make me the last resort. Don't you know that I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords? I'm the very Son of God, and you treat me that way? He could do that with any of us. Any of us. And yet when we came to him, he didn't meet us in that way. He met us right there in the place of our desperation, and he was eager to bring us in close to him and express and reveal himself uh, to us. It is an amazing love and compassion that he has for us. And the Bible teaches in, in Psalm uh, 103, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frames and he remembers that we are dust. Kind of like what we looked at this morning. The Lord knows that life is hard here. He knows that life is tough. He knows that our fallen condition is, not, uh, is hard on us as much as it is upon anyone else. And He understands in a way that nobody else can understand. And we just give Him praise and thanks tonight for the fact that when we came, and I'll speak just for the knucklehead that I am, that when I finally came as a last resort, uh, he didn't upbraid me but welcomed me into his family. And if you sit here this morning and you're, or this evening and you're not yet a Christian, he will do the same for you tonight. There'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God that comes through faith in his Son. Let's stand together now and we'll pray.